How can we microdose nature into the built environment? What are the benefits of green spaces and who has access to them? What's the story behind Billie Holiday's song, Strange Fruit? I'm Bon Koo, the host of Design Lab. It's a show where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? You are going to love today's guest. She is Dr. Jennifer Roberts. She is a tenured associate professor in the Department of Kinesiology at the School of Public Health at the University of Maryland College Park. Dr. Roberts is the founder and director of the Public Health Outcomes and Effects of the Built Environment Lab, as well as the co-founder and co-director of Nature Rx at UMD. Jennifer's scholarship focuses on the impact of the built, social, and natural environments. She addresses the institutional and structural inequities of these environments on the public health outcomes of marginalized communities. She explores the dynamic relationship between environmental, social, and cultural determinants of physical activity, and she uses empirical evidence of this relationship to infer complex health outcome patterns and disparities. Jennifer instigates a powerful shift that recognizes, breaks, and transforms these conditions and determinants of health. Recently, I was in New York City for a conference, and I got to connect with Rebecca. She's a listener to the podcast. This is one of my favorite things in life, to meet someone who listens to the show. It was so cool to do that. If you're listening to us right now on Apple Podcasts, do me a favor, pause, go there, give us five stars, leave us a review. It really helps others find out about the show. Sign up for our newsletter that our producer, Rob Puglisi, creates each week for you. The link is on the podcast show notes and tell someone about the show. Now, here's my conversation with Jennifer Roberts. Jennifer Roberts, welcome to Design Lab. Really stoked to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here as well. You direct the Public Health Outcomes and Effects of the Built Environment Laboratory, aka Phoebe. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about the Phoebe Laboratory? Sure. So this... Lab. Well, it's funny because when I got into this discipline or this space, it's a kind of a transition for me where I was previously and where I got my formal training. And so when I entered this space of active living and physical activity and started going to conferences, I noticed people actually had labs. I had this kind of thought that, you know, a lab was a wet lab. And so I was like, I need to come up with a lab and a lab name. And so it was funny because I was brainstorming over the course of a weekend and I knew I wanted to put public health in the title and built environment. And then it just kind of came and I was like, oh, Phoebe, that's kind of cute. But in any case, the Phoebe Laboratory is really just a space where I kind of put all of my scholarship, whether it's, you know, peer reviewed papers, conferences, or even just activities I do that focuses on the relationship of built environment, but also other environments like natural environments, social environments on our ability to move. I say physical activity because it's cute for the actual, you know, lab name. But when I think about movement, I'm thinking about not only just structured physical activity, I'm thinking about the unstructured. So like if you're going to walk to work Mm -hmm. or if you're walking to school, if you're gardening, you know, all these other types of movement. And so I think how we have some environments that encourage this kind of movement and then Mm -hmm. some environments that discourage that. So that's kind of what the Phoebe lab represents. Can you give us a 
primer on some definitions. What's the difference between built environment, natural environment, social environment? Sure, sure. So when you think about the built environment, that's really our man-made environment. So that's like our neighborhoods, our communities. That's literally the streets that we construct, the transportation systems that we may have. So if you're in some cities like New York or even Chicago, or even where I am, you know, in the Washington, D.C. area, you'll have this like mass transit. So that's part of the built environment. So if you think about all the things that are constructed for man by man, Mm. And then you have the natural environment. It sounds just like what it is. It's green space or it's blue space or where there's water and any place that necessarily was not made by man per se. And then other environments, social environment. So are you places where there's a lot of social capital, whether meaning, you know, are you in a place where there's a lot of people, people that are colleagues, people just, you know, that same person who you see every day at your coffee shop, you may not know their name, but that's a person who you engage with. Mm. So that's part of your social environment. So I look at all of those environments and how they impact us and impact our, like our health and well-being. Mm. And you study the health, the benefits of green spaces around us. Can you give, provide some of maybe your favorite evidence of evidence of the health benefits of green spaces? Sure. So, I mean, the body of research and literature out there on the impacts, the positive impacts of green space is just massive, but some of the things that people have really documented are when you go into green spaces, you know, you have a leveling of your blood pressure. It boosts your immune system. It helps reduce anxiety, depression. So you have your mental health benefits, your physical health benefits. And then the other thing too is how it can encourage aspects, meaning when you go out into these natural spaces, most likely you're moving. So there's physical activity. So you have like this additive impact. So what not only are the actual natural environment giving you, you know, a leveling of your blood pressure, but you have, you know, an improvement of your cardiovascular system because you're doing some physical activity while you're in this green space. So it's just kind of like this wonderful kind of thing of where you're like, if I'm in green space, I probably am moving. But even if you're not, you're still getting benefits, you know, whether it's physical benefits or mental health benefits and even social benefits. Because a lot of times you're in green space, you might see someone who you know, or you may go with a partner. So it's just, it's just many, many different benefits. I am a avid surfer. I just surfed yesterday, in fact. And as I get older, I think why I love surfing so much is that it puts me out in the ocean. Right. And before I was like, well, I like it because I just like love ripping on great waves and that activity. But actually, it's just a fraction. Actually, me riding a wave is just a fraction of the hours I spend surfing. It's just being out there in nature. Mm-hmm. And I think it. I'm like learning more and more. It does have these mental health and even like physiologic impacts upon my life. Right, right. It's like those endorphins get going. And I think also too, when we're in nature, we really kind of can position ourselves in the sense that the massiveness of how nature has been created, you Mm -hmm. know, that is something where we see how small we are, but how powerful nature is. And so when you're on those waves, it's the power of the water and you can't help but to be impressed by that. And so nature gives us a sense of awe. And so I think 
you can't help but to kind of feel euphoric with that. And so that, again, you know, is is beneficial. So I think definitely it's that kind of energy you get and that excitement. And it's just really kind of this majestic beauty that you get from looking at something that man did not create. It was just created by however you want to define how it was created. But man didn't create it. We can all agree on that. Yeah. You know, one of my pandemic hobbies I picked up is mountain biking because I have a great park near me outside Uh of Philadelphia where I mountain bike. And during the pandemic, the CDC recommended go to a local park. It's safe. And you've written about that. But Mm -hmm. why is that recommendation problematic for some communities? Well, it's problematic because of the issue with access. So on the surface, it's great because during when CDC recommended that, you know, a lot of people were feeling that cabin fever because we were at the height of being locked down. And so if you're going out, outdoor space, we can socially distance. And also, you know, you might engage in some physical activity because you're walking in the park. But what we have seen, and particularly that was reported by the Trust for Public Lands, is that about half of us, little under half of us, actually have a park within a 10-minute walk. Mm. So that's problematic because of the fact that if I have to get in my car and actually drive to the park, I'm not going to say it negates the experience, but that actually can become a barrier to going Mm -hmm. to the park. And so a lot of people won't go. But if you're like, oh, the park is just five minutes away or 10 minutes away, people are more likely to go. And research has shown that when parks are closer to people's homes and neighborhoods, they're more likely to increase their physical activity and they have a lower risk of excess weight and overweight obesity. Mm-hmm. So having a park is great, but because of the way our neighborhoods have been designed, historical racism in some of the housing practices, the settlement patterns of how people live are inequitable. And so Mm. you'll have some neighborhoods that have a great, wonderful park within 10 minutes, and then you'll have some other neighborhoods, particularly communities of color or low-income communities that, A, may not have a park within 10 minutes. And then if there is a park, it's usually significantly smaller in acreage, and then the quality of it is also lower. So- that's why it was problematic when CEC said, hey, everybody, go to your park. Not everyone had an equitable chance to go to a park. Yeah. And you researched this topic and you also have a new course on it. It's called Black Bodies and Green Spaces that you're teaching. Can you yes. tell us about what your students are learning in that course? Sure. So that course, I am so excited. So That's the second course that I've created (laughs) from scratch. I was about to say that was the first course I created from scratch. The second course I've created from scratch, but it's a little bit, it tugs at my heart a little bit more, I guess I should say, because so University of Maryland has this program where they have a kind of a honors college for some incoming freshmen. And so you're kind of like in this honors program and you take specific honors courses. And so what they do is they ask faculty to apply to be an honors faculty for, you know, it's like a two-year term. Mm -hmm. And every couple of years, the honors college comes up with different themes of the courses. So they had a theme of, for example, freedom. What does freedom mean? Another theme of structural racism. There's just many different themes. And so you can say, I want to create a course that would match this theme. So I created a course, initially it was going to match the structural racism theme, but when they accepted my course, they said, actually, can we squeeze it into the freedom theme? 
And I was like, sure, it'll fit wherever. But in any case, this course that I created is called Black Bodies, Green Spaces from 1619 till today. And it sounds like literally what the title is. So I look at and present to students how there's been an evolution in terms of the relationship, the connection of people from Africa and then coming here, African-Americans, how that relationship has evolved and changed with nature. And so how it's been impacted, for example, you know, you came from Africa, you were pilfered from Africa and you came here, you know, and now you had to create this new relationship with this foreign land, this land that really represented brutality. It represented so many things that were not good for you, per se, in, in under the auspice of this bondage and enslavement. Mm. But you had to create this new type of environment where before in your home, you know, you were you were a hunter-gatherer, you were a farmer. And so you had a really good, respectful relationship good harmony with nature. But now it's like, okay, now it's just like this completely different experience. And then the evolution of how after, you know, emancipation, now you're free. And so you're still kind of reacquainting yourself with the environment under the auspice of being like this free person, but not really free because you're a sharecropper. And then we talk about the massive movement of the great migration. So, so many, over 6 million African-Americans who left the South and went to these urban areas up North in the Midwest and out West. And so that changed your relationship. And so we go through all these type of periods and episodes in which either the environment was something that was of harmony or something that terrorized you or something that now you maybe have trauma to deal with because maybe, you know, the period where there was a lot of lynchings, which often happened in green space. And so we go all the way, you know, kind of ending with current day of issues like with the episode with Christian Cooper, who was in a green space and he had to deal with issues of, you know, white privilege, other kind of converging intersection issues of racism with in this green space, a green space, actually, which is interesting of Central Park and how it represented almost the site of the first kind of displacement of African-Americans when you look at Seneca Village within Central Park. So we talk about a whole lot of different things and we do activities. And I think it's just one of these classes that will evolve over time. And so I, I'm looking forward to getting feedback from my students who are these like the newbies in this class to see, you know, what they liked, what they didn't like, what they want to see more of. And so it's just an exciting class for me. What do your students think so far? Is like this the first time they're hearing about it or do they know about this history? Is it new knowledge to them? I'm just curious to know what the response has been like from your class. I'm going to say 90% of what I'm presenting is brand new. Wow. And you can even see in their eyes, wow. you know, because these students, I have sophomores and I believe one junior and their eyes are really big because, you know, I'll ask them questions. Like, for example, I'll say, are you guys familiar with the term Jim Crow? Mm. And they'll say a little bit, but they didn't know like the Jim Crow before it became laws so who jim crow was mm. the song or i'll ask them but i think one of the classes they really enjoyed well enjoy is not the word i want to say but got information that was brand new to them was mm. the class that i called strange fruit mm. and many of the students had heard of no they had heard of billy holiday <laughs> 
but they uh, hadn't really heard of strange fruit per se because they always want to see how much they know initially and so they really enjoyed the story behind the poem that was written and then subsequently that was turned into a song sung by Billie Holly and then the whole implications of the government trying to stop Billie Holiday from singing it and what strange fruit really means. And so they found that really, really intriguing. And so mm. I think, you know, the average student is like 19 and this is just brand new. But I really appreciate when some of them can like link it or connect it to maybe stories or conversations they've had with their grandparents or their parents. And so I really appreciate that because they'll be like, oh, yeah. So my mom and my parents grew up in South Carolina and they talked about sundown towns. I remember. And so I like when they can make the links because I don't want it to be like, I understand it's brand new information, but I want them to be able to anchor it in something that they have heard before, if mm. that makes any sense. Mm. And in your course, do you challenge misconceptions about race and nature? I do. I do. I think one of the things that we do talk about is like, well, what does wilderness mean? Mm. You know, how has it been defined? And so we talk a lot about the early derivations of national parks. We talk about Sierra Club and its founder, John Muir. And so we often engage in conversations of like, what does wilderness mean? And who mm. was it initially for? And how do maybe folks of color define wilderness versus how white people may define wilderness and how that has evolved and changed over time? And then we talk about who is wilderness for? We talk about the land, you know, in the sense that, you know, University of Maryland is a land grant institution. So we had a lecture. We talked about, well, whose land <laughs> are we sitting on and how was the institution funded? And so we talk about dispossession of land and indigenous populations. And so that challenge and I think they appreciate it because you'll think about, you know, if you think about the moral acts. So you know, it kind of is great that all of a sudden all these public institutions were erected and funded because now it's just not the wealthy elite kids who can go to college. Now a lot of working class families, kids can go to college, but at the expense of who? And so it's like this kind of challenge that mm -hmm. it's like, you know, yes, it's great that we have University of Maryland, but let's think about what that meant in terms of how this institution was erected, how it was funded. And we can acknowledge that, but then how can we move forward and atone for it? How can mm -hmm. we move forward and kind of make things a little bit better? So we have those back and forth conversations. And I think they really appreciate it because I really love to hear what they have to say. Yeah. I'm curious to know your thoughts on how we can redesign our concept of what a park space is. Because for many, a park, especially in cities like the one I work in Philadelphia, is the only access to green space that inhabitants may have. Mm -hmm. I think, well, for one, when people hear of parks and green space, they, they often think very grand. Like we're going off to the Grand Canyon or we're going <laughs> off to... What was that? There was this really big, this forest, or not forest, this park I went to in the San Francisco Bay Area. It has this big old tree. I can't think of it. Anyhow, these grand, grand types of yeah. natural I, I, I know, I know that park. I've walked yes! through that park too. Yeah. Right. I was like, whoa. This yeah. Is yeah. Like the tree so is massive. Cool. Yeah. It's massive. And I think if we start 
start to really understand that a green space can be something that is as a small like parkway. It could be a it could be on a rooftop. It could be mm. anywhere that you're able to get the sensation of the natural environment. And I always say to people because you know I'm a proponent of people getting nature exposure. Mm. But I also acknowledge, because I like to think of myself as a health equity scholar, I also acknowledge the inequities of getting that exposure. And so I say, you know what, you don't have to hit it on all five cylinders. You don't have to go out and like hear the, you know, these hawks, you know, or <laughs> you don't have to go out and see like the, the the horizon of like the Grand Canyon, or you don't have to go out and smell you can hit one or two types of senses and still get that dose of nature. Mm. So I'll say sometimes you may be in an urban environment where maybe you live in a high rise and you don't have access to a backyard, front yard. So that's why sometimes I love YouTube. I actually use natural sounds to help put my puppy to sleep. Mm. Like, and it'll be like those, it could be water, it could be just songbirds. And so you can just listen to that. And sometimes the sound is enough to give you that dose. Mm. You may be in a part where you're like, hey, maybe I can crack the window a little bit and smell like the fresh rain that just happened. So now you have scent and you have sound. And so you can kind of create your own like little nature dose and not have to actually be like in the quote unquote Grand Canyon, you know? And so I think if we start to think more creatively, we can get a little bit more of that nature exposure in ways that fit our lifestyle, yeah. you know? And so in urban environments, it may be a little small area behind a building. It may be like a little area. I mean, oftentimes I'm on a master's committees for our students who are getting their master's in landscape architecture. Mm. And some of the ideas they have for projects may be for like, for example, how to create green space at an assisted living facility that's in the middle of a city and they're so creative it could be like this little nook at the side of the building Mm. that they put a tree or they put like little green and flowers and it's small but you you get that dose in how you kind of just create it and you just be a little bit more creative how you can place it and then what you can put in it i love that where you know we could design environmental justice by these micro doses of nature Right, right. Think out of the box of like, what are ways to do this and not on this kind of grand scale? Because that's what I was thinking of like, oh, well, how are we going to build all these parks when there's like literally no space to build a park? Because there's buildings and there's parking spaces and cars need to go there. Right, right. And sometimes repurposing things that are not really used anymore. So, you know, there may be parking lots that are not really used, not really needed, and you can repurpose it and put in like actual greenery in there. And so that can be a space that it may still have an impervious surface, but you're putting like kind of plant boxes and little things that will just get people outside to be in that area. And so thinking about how we can repurpose things that were not traditionally intended to be a quote unquote green space. Yeah, I'm just thinking if, you know, green spaces make us more human, and, you know, what can we do with hospital environments that I work in? Because they are the most inhumane spaces in communities where they're a place of healing, but there's such a lack of access to nature or these right. micro, microdoses of nature that you're talking about. Yeah, you inspired me. I was like, well, I could think of some ways where we could 
we could do that in a hospital setting. I definitely think there's some definite some ways. And you know, it's interesting too. It can also, you know, for patients who are ambulatory or who are able to, they can go outside. They can actually go outside. And I remember I was reading something about, you know, issues with people. I'm saying issues like it was not a big issue, but like the 1918 influenza pandemic, where a lot of hospitals were actually putting their patients outside. Yeah. I think it was kind of novel because they were thinking, okay, I mean, this is pre-vaccine, pre a whole lot going on. And I think they realized, you know what? I think these patients need some sunlight and to get outside. And it helped patients dealing with influenza. And so I think that is something that can be used in the sense that people can have little courtyards, little places that, you know, ambulatory patients can go out or even patients who can be wheeled out just to get a little bit of nature. And then even the staff, oh, the staff alone, yes. they could use it. Absolutely. They, they definitely can use Absolutely. it. Absolutely. <laughs> I was just at a conference and with many architects and they were talking about, well, how do we design for the caregivers? Because mm. that is often missed. We talk a lot about designing spaces for patients, but right. if we don't design spaces that are healing for the caregivers, they can't deliver good care. So I, I love, I love right. that. that. And, and I love the fact that, you know, it's funny when you said caregivers, I didn't go to the clinicians. I went to the loved ones coming to mm -hmm, visit someone. Mm -hmm. So that caregiver, meaning you're about to be a caregiver when this person is discharged yeah. or you were a caregiver before this person was admitted. So it's funny. I went to that other level of caregiver, but definitely the clinicians, the, the family, friends, all of that, they need, you know, something to be, to be taken care of too, so that they can get re-energized and to get back to doing their role that you know they do so well in the first place yeah yeah and we had one guest on talking about his experience being in icu as a patient and a nurse had brought in a snowball because it was snowing outside and he ah. was in the hot he had severe burns he had to be in the hospital for months but even that access is microdose of nature was mm -hmm. beautiful to him yes. because it's such a cold environment that is devoid of nature and that was inspiring for him to actually feel and hold this snowball I bet. I brought in yes i bet it's something so small as a snowball you know he has not been outside in, in days months and to actually feel something from the outdoors or even smell it just all the any senses that you can get from just that little piece of nature yeah and i love this program that you created at your university, Nature RX program. Can you talk right. about that program? Yeah. So that program, we launched it in 2019. And it's funny because it was born out of the whole Park RX movement. Mm -hmm. So right before we launched it, I went to this luncheon that was kind of commemorating some of the work that Dr. Robert Czar, who was in the, was in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm not sure where he's now. Last I heard he was in New Zealand. But in any case, he was one of the early proponents of the Parker X movement. And he started prescribing prescription, nature prescriptions, park prescriptions to his pediatric patients in the D.C. area. Because he said he just started, he's a big naturalist himself. And he was thinking like, you know, he wanted to prescribe nature, not necessarily always as an alternative to some of the other, you know, Western medicinal therapies, but maybe as a supplement. And he actually started to see how some of his patients started to get off some of the more traditional Western therapies. But in any case, I went to a luncheon, I met him and afterwards he said, you know what, there's some college campuses who have started like this nature RX program. And I was like, for real? He was like, you could probably start one at UMD. 
And so I was like, that sounds so awesome. <laughs> so myself and my colleague, Dr. Shannon Jetty, who's also in the Department of Kinesiology with me at UMD, we said, let's do this together. And our goal was to, we started talking about it like that fall, early fall of the academic year of 2018. And we said, we want to get this launched by Earth Day. We don't know what we have to do, but we're going to get this launched. So we put together a team of folks. And these are people from all over the campus, landscape architecture, history, environmental health, just people from all different disciplines. We had some people from the health services. Uh We had folks from the Department of Religion, just people from all over. And so we kind of thought about what would be our mission. And so we came up with a mission of bringing together people so that they can understand the benefits of nature, how it's beneficial for our health and well-being, but also to acknowledge that UMG sits on this, it acknowledges the arboretum. Mm. And we have all these green spaces and we can use these green spaces to amplify and maintain our health and well-being, but also to kind of encourage some environmental stewardship. So when we launched it that Earth Day, we were excited because we wanted to make sure we had some kind of visibility. So we launched like our Twitter account and our Instagram account and our webpage. But we also had activities throughout the campus that day. So we had morning yoga. We had afternoon Qigong. We had a clean and climb event. So we have a rock climbing wall on part of our campus and it's right near the creek. So if you help clean up the creek, then you can climb as much as you want. We had like a park run on that weekend. So we had all these activities so that we would say, hey, you know, NatureRx is being launched. And so part of what this program, it has kind of multiple goals. So one is definitely to try and have actual nature prescriptions for our students. And we were going to kind of get that started the following year, but we kind of had a pandemic. So that kind of... (laughs) (laughs) um, Small, small roadblock into implementation of projects. Right. A small roadblock. And actually our clinicians are already really much very inundated. We already were trying to figure out ways to kind of add this already to the already, you know, 10 things that they're doing. And so that kind of had to be put on the back burner. But other goals are also goal of education. So creating courses or identifying courses that are already in existence so that we can kind of put them and corral them together so people can go and learn more about nature, either historically or present, learn how to engage in nature, anything and everything about nature. And then research. So again, with research, within the campus so intramural research grants and or extramural so i have i collaborate with folks from the university of washington i collaborate with people even across the pond in the uk so mm. research on nature and then the last one actually came about during the course of the pandemic and that is one of recognition and it's funny because that probably was always a part of me it's kind of a theme in who i am but it didn't come to the forefront of like oh that should be actually a goal of NatureX. And that is to really acknowledge the fact that UMD sits on the land of the Piscataway tribal mm-hmm. community and also to acknowledge, you know, issues in terms of displacement of those people and to even recognize elders who are in the community of the Piscataway tribe. And then acts of atonement acts of acknowledgement, mm. all these other things. And then also in addition to that, to engage in the conversation 
of the historic slave ties that we have with the university mm -hmm. and to bring that also into the conversation, that also a conversation of atonement and how to move forward. So I wanted to make sure we had that. And so we call that arm or that goal recognition. And we are now, you know, I guess four years in and we continue to evolve and continue to grow and continue to kind of have collaborations with people on campus and outside of campus. So it's exciting. We're actually next Friday, I believe it is, going to have our campus, our third campus RX symposium. So it's going to be online. Oh, and cool. Other campuses who have similar programs, you know, they will come and they will talk about their program. And it's nice because each program is kind of tailored to that campus community, which makes sense. And yeah. so it's interesting because you'll be like, oh, look at what William & Mary is doing. Oh, that could work here. Or look what Cornell's doing. That could work here. And so it's very engaging, but also informative of how you can improve your program. And so I love it. You know, it's just one of these things that it's kind of intrinsic to who I am and what nature means to me. If someone is listening and involved with the university, can they start one at their university? Yes. And so that's the other great thing about this symposium. It talks about how you can start one because I have a colleague at Brown University who said she wants to start one. I'm like, oh, that's so exciting because it's my alma mater. I'm like, yeah. they should start one. And so definitely anyone can definitely start one. They can reach out to me or other people, you know, who have started one. And if you're interested in seeing, you know, what other people have done, you can actually go to the website, which is campusnature.com. And you can see all of the different campuses who've initiated a program. And once you go to that website, you can click on the individual campuses. And it's a great resource if, you know, you're interested in creating a program yourself. So cool. We'll put that in the podcast show notes. And how did you get into this work? Did you always want to do this? Because I think I listened to an interview at one point, you were pre-med, but you had switched into mm -hmm. public health. Yeah. You know, it's funny because my trajectory is just like so jagged. So when I started undergrad, I went in thinking, well, because I like science and because I like stuff that has to do with human health, then that probably means I'm going to be, I should be a physician. So all when I was at Brown, I was pre-med and I was like, this is what I'm going to do. But a part of me was thinking, I don't know. Like, for example, <laughs> I had an internship, I think it was my junior year, at a pediatric clinic and I was following this pediatrician. And I remember I was like, this is not for me. <laughs> like the babies were crying. I'm crying because the babies are crying. And I was like, well, you know what? Maybe it's just because it's baby. So then I actually did another one in geriatrics. And I'm like, oh, this is not me. Grandma is so sick. Oh my God. I, I think I was just, I realized, I think I am just not a clinician. I want to visit grandma, but I don't want to have the pride. And so anyhow, I think there was an evolution in the sense that I realized, you know what? I can still be engaged in this type of space, but I don't necessarily have to be a physician or a clinician per se. And so after I graduated, I then went and got my, well, I took a couple of years off, but then I went and got my master's of public health. And I still was kind of hanging on to this maybe idea. I'm like, I think I even went to saying, okay, you know what? If it's a deal with, you know, I crying with the babies, crying with grandma, maybe I could be a radiologist. Then I'm not going to be with people. <laughs> but then I'm like, no, I miss people. But anyhow, I actually was still kind of hanging on. I took the MCAT and everything. I'm like, this is probably what's going to happen. So I said, but let me just get my master of public health first. And then I'll, I'll still figure it out. 
But in my first year at Emory, I took the intro to environmental health class. And I said, oh, my goodness, this is it. I had an epiphany. I said, this whole idea, I was learning about toxicology. I was learning about, you know, these toxins in the environment, whether it's water, whether it's air. And I said, oh, this is it. I remember I called my mom. I said, you know, I'm not, not going to be a physician. She said, I'm glad you finally realized this because I knew a whole long time ago. But anyhow, I said, I want to go and I really want to get deep into this. And so I continued on and I got my doctorate in environmental science. And, and that, was that class taught by Howie Frumpkin? Yes, exactly. Oh, my goodness. It's funny because I have such a great relationship with Howie now. Like, you know, it's just it's so wonderful how we've come full circle. And so he was there. And I remember I was like, and this is actually when I first learned about built environments and all these other aspects. So then I said, OK, I really want to dig deep into this. And I think I want to get a doctorate. So mm-hmm. then I went and I focused And I went another four years. This time I was at Hopkins and I just was learning all these things, you know, air pollution studies I was working on. I still, I started to get into like microbials in the water. Like it was just, it was fascinating. And I thought during those four years, it's kind of funny that I had to eat eat my words afterwards, I was like, oh, I cannot go into academia. These, prof- <laughs> these poor professors, I know I'm bugging them 24 seven. And these poor professors, they look so overworked. They look crazy. They're always running for a grant. So I said, you know what? I think I want to be a consultant. And part of that also was because in some of the courses I took, so within my degree program, I took a certificate course, which was four courses sequentially over the course of a year. And it was a certificate in risk sciences. And often we would have guest lecturers who were consultants. Mm. And I was like, this is fascinating. And to me, it seemed like academia that was catalyzed and because it was going super, super fast on something. And so I was like, this is what I want to do. And so I became an environmental health consultant. My first gig was out in the San Francisco Bay Area. The company was called Chemrisk. The name has now since changed, but it was in the downtown financial district of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And I loved it because I really was, you know, getting different projects, you know, and they were moving fast. And a lot of the work was litigation based. So it'd be like company A would come in and say, look, can you check this out? You know, we've had a couple employees who have come down with mesothelioma or asbestosis, or we have some employees who are sick with XYZ. Can you check this out? And so it could go swing from that to, for example, when I went to another firm, when I moved to the Chicago area, there was a company or a a potential client who said, can you tell us where the wind turbine syndrome is? And I'm like, give me a month and I will tell you, (laughs) you know, and so it was very fast. And I think I enjoyed it while I was in it for like about five years I was in it. But I started to kind of get disenchanted with the inability to really keep diving in, diving in. And I say that because, you know, a client would come in and say, can you get this? Can you get this done for us? And, you know, we get the project done. But I still want to kind of dig in and let's look at this some more. But (laughs) the project's over and you can't keep going. You have to go to the next client or the next project. And so I started to realize I'm kind of missing something. I want to be able to really pick at something and just keep diving in. And also, I kind of wanted to go back to that earlier day when I was thinking about built environment Mm -hmm. research. So I pivoted. 
literally, meaning I, I left consultancy and I went into academia and I left what I call risk assessment, risk sciences, and went into this whole field of building environment and physical activity. So it was a sharp pivot. And I will always be indebted to Uniform Service University because mm. they gave me my first first academic position where I was able to cut my teeth in the world of academia. And I had to learn how to put classes together. I had to learn how to teach. But I created my whole new research program. And so they were kind of like, you know, come in here and we're going to get you some startup funding and you can create a whole brand new research program. And what I am indebted to is because a lot of times when you get an active position, they want to see you've already been doing some of the things that you uh-huh. say you want to do. But I came and saying, I want to do this whole new kind of field of work on physical activity and the built environment and all these new things. And so they said, okay, you can do that. And here's some money to do that. But for teaching, can you still kind of teach in your old life? So, for example, I was teaching risk communication. Mm-hmm. I taught some lessons on ocular toxicology. <laughs> I was teaching risk assessment. So I kind of straddled both worlds. But it was okay because, you know, a lot of universities won't give you that startup money yeah. to say, okay, start a whole new research program. We believe that you can do it, even though you not, have not shown, <laughs> you know, any experience in this particular area of scholarship. So, when I pivoted, it was like the best thing for me. And then a few years later, I came over here to the University of Maryland and continued to kind of evolve that research program. And so mm-hmm. it's been a great, a great pivot. Thanks for sharing how a public health researcher is doing public health research is an act of creativity. It is a very creative journey that, it that is. you've had. It is a creative journey. We have such a great listening audience of so my last two questions to engage them would be if you recommend a book to them that you either like read recently or one of your favorites from the past. And if one of them were to visit you, where would you take them to eat? Okay. So the first question is, I got to look up the book. Yeah. Let's look it up. It's called All We Can Save. (laughs) All We Can Save. Yes. So. Oh, by Catherine Wilkinson. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, so the book that I would recommend is called All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis. And I'm recommending this because it was, so University of Maryland has what they call the first year book. And freshmen coming in, you know, are given this book and they will read the book. They will sometimes have classes related to the book. And so it's called the first year book. This book was an excellent choice because it's a book written by a group of women who are climate activists in some capacity, but it's a book of prose. It's a book of poems. It's a book of essays. Like it's really great and it's really reachable. Like it's not a book necessarily that you read necessarily from page one to the end. You know, you don't have to read it sequentially. You can say, oh, I want to read this poem. And so it's multiple authors. I think even Alice Walker might be one of the authors. Like it's just many different women. And I just love how they put this together because it is something that is digestible for everybody. And so this is definitely a book I would recommend. Yay. All right. We'll put that in the show notes. And if someone were to visit you, where would you take them to eat and talk about the book? Well, that's a loaded question <laughs> because I eat everything. But one of my favorite restaurants is in a Tacoma Park, Maryland, and it's called Soul Food. 
but Seoul spelled like Seoul, Korea. I love it because the first time I actually had Korean food, I was flying actually literally through Seoul and it was it was like in the airport. And you know how airport food, you really don't have a high expectation, but I had a long layover because I was like, I don't know how long. Well, I knew it was like at least two hours before we went on, continued on to Bangkok. And I was hungry and I saw the chef cooking. That was some of the best food. I said, and this, wait a minute, this is like airport food. So I said, oh my goodness, I'm sold. So when I came back, I was looking for a Korean restaurant and this place is called Soul Food. And it's a really lovely story behind it. I think husband and wife, they either met in South Korea or they moved there and came back. But in any case, that is some of the best food. And she tailors it. Even though when you say spicy, you be careful. Say say little spicy because she will really take it to a level that you're like, oh my goodness. But it's it's awesome. I love I love it. And so I would take folks there. I am going to check it. Out. I'm Korean, so yes, I'm totally going to check it out next time in Maryland. Thanks for that recommendation, and thank you, Dr. Roberts, for being on the show. This is so well, much thank fun. You. It was. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, now I'm really hungry. I really want some Korean food. You can follow Jennifer Roberts on Twitter. Her handle is at A-C-T-I-V-E-R-O-B-E-R-T-S. And reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram at B-O-N-K-U, on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab is produced by Rob Pugisi. Editing by Fernando K. Rose. Our theme music is created by Emmanuel Houston. And the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.